Hello everybody and welcome to the Happy Dystopian. I'm here again today with Ferdy. Ferdy, how are you doing? Hey everyone, yes, I'm, uh, I'm doing great on this, uh, well, uh, clear sky Sunday, you know, uh, what's not to like about it. Happy to be here again and uh, talk to you about uh, the interesting uh, topics that we've talked about before and also some new things maybe. Yeah, a lot has, uh, has happened uh, to be sure. So perhaps to start, uh, because we are uh, the happy uh, dystopian, I would like to describe a very uh, romantic moment I had this uh, this morning. All right. I was uh, driving into town from the east uh, direction, mm -hmm. and I took uh, the route where you uh, go from the the highway into the center. Right. You just gradually slow down, and uh, yeah, you pass all those great uh, buildings. Yeah. Uh, maybe the ministry buildings, but also you pass underneath some. Uh, buildings that have been built uh, on top of the highway uh, so yeah, to speak. At the central uh, station yeah so it was blasting uh, we built the city by uh, starship <laughs> and uh, then uh, as i drove under one of those bridges there was a, a sign or uh, some uh, graffiti artist put up here is dear in other words the rent is unaffordable. Right, yes. <laughs> I think we also saw that when we came back from Antwerp uh, ah, like yeah, some yeah, time yeah. ago. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it really gave me a feeling of like being in a movie, of uh, being part of a big city with hundreds of thousands of people, uh, all struggling together, all those different things that are uh, going on. So, um, yeah. Very, uh, very interesting. Uh, yeah, so, so you so, see like uh, the skyline of The Hague and uh, the, the political heart and center of the Netherlands where it all happens for us. But uh, then you also see a sign of underlying problems being clad on the highway. Yeah, exactly. So it's the, the seat of the Dutch government, but also uh, yeah, the motto is uh, peace and justice. So right. it's all international law, which is taken very seriously here bit of a losing battle if you you ask me but yeah. it's it's still something uh, which is taken seriously here but then also all of the stuff happening in in the big city the big city problems the neighborhood where we are now it's it's known as a as a hotbed of criminal activity it's an open secret uh, the drug dealing the money laundering uh, and also all of the migration stuff taking place here it's a bit of a gray area there's some uh, seasonal laborers who are housed here in uh, too small housing uh, but then there's also the human trafficking uh, there's there's really a lot a uh, lot going on then uh, one kilometer away from here you see uh, the area where uh, yeah the political islam is getting its uh, foothold in the netherlands it's uh, that's also going on so yeah a lot happening to uh, yeah, a few hundred thousand people in this uh, small place so uh, yeah, yeah, glad to be a part a part of it and uh, yeah to uh, struggle together. Process, yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so very interesting. So yeah, I thought something uh, good to uh, to start off uh, with. Well, partly good. If yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Mixed feelings, but you know, bittersweet. That's life. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, like a movie. You know, movies should not only be positive. There's right. also no, some challenges true. Uh, true. involved. Um, so perhaps we can uh, at first uh, discuss a bit more about uh, the topic which uh, we have been talking about a lot, which is uh, central bank uh, policy. Um, so uh, last time I was uh, sort of cautiously optimistic about uh, some sort of hawkish comments by the ECB. However, since then they have announced that uh, yeah, after the pandemic emergency purchasing program, there will be another program, right. uh, permanent uh, 
this time. And then in addition to this, uh, the Germans uh, have gone to the uh, have voted for a new government, which is currently being uh, constructed. And they've already stated that they will be looking for the loopholes in the in the tax and in the spending uh, uh, clauses in their constitution. Well, as you will remember, the Germans uh, had a very traumatic experience in the 1920s with hyperinflation, which mm-hmm. uh, led to political unrest, which then led to uh, yeah the Third Reich and uh, and the Second World War and uh, etc. Et so Germany has traditionally been very averse to uh, fiscal expansion and fiscal irresponsible behavior. But it seems that even the Germans uh, nowadays uh, cannot be trusted uh, anymore. Yeah. Uh, how do you view these uh, developments? Yeah. yeah, well, it's like you say, um, and we discussed at the previous time, uh, the signaling by the ECB on the, the, the pandemic program, the PEP, and on scaling it down somewhere starting in 2022. It was the least thing they could do, but I didn't expect either that they would then, uh, in the, the month after, uh, bring up this idea of a new tool uh, in which they will permanently you know, consider using, uh, which is the new uh, asset purchase program, which will, yeah, it, it has been embraced by the ECB, while it is actually a crisis tool, only used in unconventional times, actually. The thing that makes it like uh, more uh, obvious, the direction that the ECB is taking, is when you now look at the other central banks uh, around Europe and around the US. The Federal Reserve is uh, tampering down the purchase program way faster in any case, and even they are considering uh, you know, a rate hike by now, because due to the inflation also occurring, it's the obvious thing to do to save purchasing power. Uh, the Bank of Russia has increased, has already done multiple rate hikes. Uh, Japan has uh, announced that it will totally stop uh, buying more assets under their uh, large-scale asset purchase program starting in 2022, like to a complete stop rather than just scaling down. Bank of England is now uh, seriously considering rate hikes, but in Europe it's uh, taboo to talk about it, even though uh, the German uh, representative at the ECB has uh, resigned you know, over this issue that uh, uh, the most people are uh, in the council are still not considering a rate hike in this time of you know very fast and quickly increasing inflation, which does not seem to be transitory, but rather you know persistent over at least the coming few years. Uh, that uh, everyone is scratching their heads now, and what direction are we taking? Why won't we budge on the interest rate? Why are we embracing this new tool of monetary expansion again, even though we know and have said? Uh, that it's not healthy to do for a longer period of time. So that was a bit of a spicy news, eh? that uh, Jens Weidmann is his name, uh, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, the German representative at the ECB. He uh, resigned citing uh, p- personal reasons, but right. also gave some uh, some comments. And perhaps it's also in the light of the new government being constructed in, in Germany that he wants yeah. to give the new government opportunity to appoint someone uh, new but uh, yeah it's definitely a sign of the times and uh, another somewhat hawkish voice lost in the ecb uh. yeah and i think regarding the german domestic political situation it's not weird to expect this new coalition to you know really desire the access to these unlimited funds streaming from frankfurt from the ecb Uh, even though that german germany was traditionally more a conservative fiscal uh, player in that council 
But I think uh, the critical element that's missing here is, uh, you know, uh, Mutti Mer Merkel and the CDU, which is a conservative party in Germany and is now missing from the negotiations. So uh, if they succeed, the uh, SDP and uh, FDP and the Greens, if they succeed in creating a government, then of course they're going to appeal to that tool again. They have huge uh, ambitions which need to be financed. Exactly, and their opponent, the CDU, has exploited this stream of funds uh, while being in power. So yeah. that's not something that they are going to want to miss because that exactly. means austerity. Yeah. yeah, that would mean, uh, okay, you had your fun, but... Uh, right, uh, yeah. uh, but now that we're <laughs> in power, uh, we're going to show you what fun is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that's politically logical. So just a small uh, uh, step from uh, from the uh, monetary policy to the effects which we are witnessing uh, now. We already saw it in the housing prices for uh, for a long time and uh, rent uh, increases, etc. But now uh, the natural gas has taken a central stage, which uh, with a huge uh, price increase. Right. So we are all really uh, noticing, uh, uh, yeah, the the higher prices. Do you think this will spark uh, some change in the policy? Well, that's uh, difficult to say because uh, it's it's difficult to say um, what the division of power really is in the, within the council. Um, it has to be, of course, predominantly hawkish in order to get real rate hikes that have any effect. And yes. as of now, uh, that just does not seem likely. Also because most member states are probably worried about what will happen if they increase the rates, uh, the rates of interest. Regarding the gas prices, it's of course a primary reason why you should increase uh, the, the interest rates because it's going to increase inflation all across the board. Uh, gas prices, they, they create uh, the, the, a large part of the cost price for any product due to shipping, uh, but also due to uh, transport over the road or people having to go to work. Electricity. Uh, Electricity for buildings, you know, uh, you name it and it has some uh, part of it is in, uh, coming from uh, gas prices. And they're going up so fast now. Uh, oil at the station uh, in the highway is now well over two euros per liter, which is uh, an increase of what, like maybe 20, 25% from like half a year ago. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that, that's going to be noticeable. So uh, it is time for an interest rate hike, but will it happen? How long can we hold out? So, so one thing is the gasoline, but another thing is the natural gas, of course, uh, which has increased uh, even, uh, even more. Yeah. Um, so all the European member states are taking their own measures. So uh, the French are saying uh, we're going to cap uh, the price of natural gas, which is if we can trust uh, our experience from history is not going to work. So uh, there's going to be some serious problems with gas shortages. So yeah. uh, in the Netherlands, we have said, okay, we're going to compensate all the households for their higher gas bill, uh, higher natural gas uh, bill. Um, but then, of course, they are taking a one-size-fits-none approach, in right. which also a lot of people uh, are going to get tax rebates, even though they are not suffering any uh, increase in the cost due to uh, a fixed uh, uh, contract, for instance. Um, and the funny thing is that this measure is going to cost a lot of tax revenue to the government, which means they will have to borrow more, which means that... the the monetary risk. expansion right. is going to go even further. Yeah, so I think the gas crisis in that way also, you know, brings a, a panic into the national governments who are going to deal with huge budget shortages because everything is becoming so much more expensive. And it's like you say, it's not just uh, fuel in gasoline, but also gas for all the electricity produced. And it's not just in Europe, it's also in China. 
and uh, in China they've already seen like structured blackouts from certain sectors to save energy. And if that's something that we're going to experience in the coming year, that's going to mean like a necessary restructuring of the economy almost because the efficiency that we have now or had before the Corona crisis will just be unattainable. It's no longer possible. So people will have to um, surrender part of their uh, purchasing power to, to such uh, factors. Yeah, it seems that uh, this is a small uh, bridge to uh, China. It seems that uh, China will be the first domino uh, block to uh, to fall. Yeah, and uh, we've talked last time about the Evergrande uh, crisis. Um, yeah, talk is still ongoing. Are they going to uh, to default? They uh, recently paid for one uh, interest payment, so they haven't technically defaulted. On the other hand, uh, in the coming months, some principal. Uh, Payments are also going to mature, and it's very doubtful if if Evergrande will be able to uh, to pay those. Yeah. But regardless of that, I would say that it is pretty much beside the point at this uh, at this moment. Uh, much of the ever uh, many of the Evergrande suppliers uh, have have defaulted. Uh, their competitors are in a problem. Um, the housing market in many places in China is in a, in a collapse. Uh, <laughs> right now, they are actually. Um, um, making a lot of uh, videos of building sites where they have continued, they have uh, returned to work. Right, right. The motivation uh, for uh, we're gonna make it. Exactly. So yeah. uh, they are really doing a lot of damage control. But uh, yeah, I think in 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 reality, it's uh, yeah for for the impact on the wider economy, it's it's no longer relevant. Are they going to miss their payments or not? Because the problem is there. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, Evergrande is just uh, one of many in China and other parts of the world which is in a similar situation, you know. Uh, a, a bubble of a market which has been created purely out of speculative reasons because people thought, well, uh, if I invest in a house, that's definitely going to go up in price by 15%. That's the best invest uh, investment I can get for my buck. Uh, so it's that model that has also been dealt like a fatal blow that people are no longer going to mindlessly just pump all their savings into uh, new housing, in any case in China for now. Because you know uh, all that housing might not be finished and there's not even any demand for it. Exactly. So China has a 90% home ownership rate and there's more than 100 million of unfinished homes which have no prospective buyer or yeah. renter. Yeah. So all that money, and we're talking about many trillions, it has been a delta blow and it's going to seep out of it while it's been one of the major contributors of Chinese economic growth. So uh, it, like you say, it doesn't really matter if the Evergrande is going to default on its 300 billion debt <laughs> uh, because uh, the entire market is going to default. Uh, it's not going to be as profitable as it was and that's going to hurt for very many people uh, that put all their savings and more into it. But that's something very interesting you point out because the housing market in many places, also in, in most uh, most of Europe, is also uh, getting inc incredibly expensive. But the flip side of that is that it only matters to those people who want to, to buy a house. Yeah. You know, and if, if that is just uh, a small uh, portion and you are expecting that because those prices are skyrocketing that it's a huge investment and you are not looking at the wider market, like, okay, but how many people are actually in the market yeah. to buy something at this price <laughs> at this price yeah uh, yeah then uh, yeah that that's why we should remember that in the case of Europe and especially the Netherlands uh, there's so much 
panic and the fear of missing out, you know, which yes. is really driving the price. Speculative behavior by individuals is, of course, part of that uh, because, you know, everyone with a lot of money uh, do- doesn't want to pay taxes on it, but would rather have a return on it. Yes. But uh, it's different in, uh, from the Chinese situation where there's buyers here. Uh, and in China, there's not really any buyers except the, those who want to do it for speculative reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. While we are still missing, like, it's what, 300,000 or something houses uh, in order to also satisfy that need. So uh, for us, it's the fear of missing out. While in China, it just seems to be greed and no real considerance of what you're buying and yeah. who you're going to sell it to because there's nobody. And in here, it's more about... I'm going to buy it at this price. Am I ever going to find someone that can afford that price? Yes. <laughs> and that's probably not the case at this point because that part of the, the market that's able to afford a 600,000 euro loan uh, on a house is very small. Yes. And it's getting smaller. Yeah. I mean, if, if, uh, if a person buys a house now and has to sell it in 20 years time, and if you look at uh, the young people just entering the labor market, I mean, uh, the salaries are low, conditions are uh, bad. Uh, there's a lot of flexible labor, uh, a lot of uh, like, uh, yeah, uh, people uh, forced to uh, act as uh, entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, while they are working not, on their own. Yeah, exactly. Like independent contractors uh, earning a very low uh, rate. Um, yeah, that's a concern definitely for the future and. Uh, we're all tossing a bomb around and we're hoping yeah. that it doesn't blow up in our Exactly, <laughs> yeah. And the thing is to, to, to tie it back to the ECB is once they signal like to the banks who are giving out these mortgages for insane amounts because the interest rate is low and the risk, the risk also seems low. Once the ECB signals, well, maybe in a year or two, the interest rate will be above zero again then uh, the banks, their, their risk teams are going to make a calculation uh, which is going to put even more people out of that group of potential buyers for those insane prices. And that's when shit's going down because all the people up to now that have bought at those prices will take the loss. And they will, uh, you know, uh, be, insol- uh, be insolvent with their house. Yeah. Yeah, if you're like uh, the house value is less than the than the outstanding mortgage, and that's uh, right, that's and, a and by a huge amount, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so not by an amount that you can pay back in maybe a year or two. No, but we're talking about a hundred thousand or something, yeah, yeah, which exactly. is the average increase in in in, in expensive houses in this year alone. Yeah, it's been yeah, it could go the other way, of course. Yeah, yeah. and then if you're one hundred thousand uh, short, short <laughs> then uh, yeah. <laughs> Especially yeah, uh, yeah. if you 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 are forced to move by uh, any reason, eh? like uh, you're getting divorced uh, or something like that, uh, it's going to be a tough situation. It's going to be a costly change in your life yeah. because you can't just uh, if you get divorced and have to find something for yourself, well, you're never going to be able to buy something had yeah. you bought something on two salaries. Yeah. So uh, everyone's paying their outer budget. Uh, and uh, once it flips, that will leave them all hanging. Yeah, and it's it's in, it's if you're renting as well. Eh? I mean, uh, if if I would move now, I'm, I'm currently renting, and I would move to another rental apartment, I would get a far worse deal than I have yeah. now. You know, yeah. so it's it's very unfair, and it's also yeah stopping people from moving. Everyone is uh, keeping in their own uh, place, and that's, that's yeah. Also, uh, and the same is uh, for the social uh, subsidized. Uh, 
you know, houses that, yeah, uh, sure, that we yeah. have a lot of. It, uh, I think it uh, outnumbers like the, the free uh, uh, renting sector, like three to one. Yeah, by far, yeah. So about uh, half, of, half of the households are in the social housing. Right, yeah, right. yeah and, and all of those people, they face like twice as much housing costs if they would go out. Yeah. So there's, like you say, this disposition where only 20% or something of people that are looking for a house uh, are being played around by everyone yes. because everyone is just, they've already found their chair and they're not going to stand up for, for you, you know, because that would leave them standing. Yeah. So, so, uh, so it's the, an the, awkward the, situation. Yeah. So the, the, the political goal is like to, to make sure that you divide the brunt of the damage over like a sufficiently small portion of the population. Right. Yeah, so they can't resist uh, actively yeah. enough. So the, the, the main part of the population will still think everything is going fine. And yeah. Uh, or, uh, yeah. <laughs> a small minority carries the blunt of, you know, the issues of the housing market. Exactly, yeah. But it's interesting, we talked about this three weeks ago and there's already been so much news in the in the meantime that it's a, a whole different topic. So uh, yeah. perhaps if we talk again in a month's time, it will be uh, very interesting <laughs> again. And I'm, I'm mainly looking forward to uh, what happens if uh, um, yeah, if there's, there's going to be a divergent path between the ECB and the rest of the world. So a lot of the smaller Western banks, as you say, have already hiked uh, the interest rates. If uh, the Federal Reserve is going to do that as well, do we have to follow or will there still be room for a divergent European policy? And if there is, what kind of effect will that have? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think, of course, the, the public stance has already diverted to some extent, also from the Fed and the ECB in the way they talk about the threat of inflation. Um, but uh, if, if the Fed uh, is going to increase the interest rate, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't be able to say at this point whether the ECB would follow that and what exactly would happen would they not do that. Of course, there's always like capital flight, you know, if the, the conditions become better somewhere else. Absolutely. But uh, maybe the anxiety will also prevent people to do that and rather just wait and see, right? Because they've not been treated very badly by the ECB thus far, that they're really wealthy uh, entities like corporates and uh, very rich individuals, they've only profited from the dovish stance. So it's still to say uh, how much effect it will really have and how the ECB will respond because of course they don't have to raise uh, the interest. They can also just say other things or do other things. Yes, Maybe yes. they will try something like that in order not to blow up like the real estate. Ah, yeah. Be like we're going to operate more restrictive, but trying not to appear that, that way. Yeah, so. like they will say publicly like, oh yeah, we're going to scale down this program while now already having announced a new one yeah. uh, as signals of, yeah, we're also, you know, scaling down on the expansion and we're trying to normalize the situation, but then never talk about the interest rate. I mean, the, the strategy, the, the 4D chess is getting really interesting. Eh? Yeah, yeah. I spoke to a banker some while back and I, I, I asked him if he was following the press conferences of the ECB and he was saying, no, I don't really follow it. I just look at the interest rate and then I don't have to look at what they're saying. Right. Yeah, but then <laughs> the mission is achieved, right? Yeah. Because, of course, the bankers fear the, 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 the deposit facility rate. Like, how much does it cost for us to put our money at your bank uh, in a stable uh, position? Uh, so yeah, they don't want to know 
when the interest rate is going up because they don't want the interest rate uh, is going up. Other people I speak on that uh, within the bank, within higher positions, they are all confident that it won't go up and uh, uh, that we will remain in these easy financial conditions uh, for the coming time, yeah, yeah forever. Yeah. Uh, but that's just not the truth. It's it's once inflation is like b- above five percent, it's no longer responsible to to do that. Yeah, then it, it will end either way. I mean, uh, yeah, it has to. I think. I think that if the inflation persists among twenty twenty two, it has to happen there because otherwise, then uh, savings f- for people will just disappear. They go up in smoke. The last time the Fed had a serious hike in the 90s, it wasn't bad for the US at all because it just meant that more money flowed from yeah. the rest of the world into the US. It did cause the Asian crisis back then, eh? so uh, it was it was bad for some upcoming uh, emerging markets. Yeah. But for the US itself, I think yeah, it could, could be okay. Yeah, it's all about how dependent, who is how dependent on, you know, access to easy finance. Yes. So I think in Europe, uh, the party that is very dependent on the easy finance are currently uh, the business sector uh, because they uh, have already uh, t- taken out so many loans under these uh, conditions which have been existing for 10 years now that uh, if you would trade the interest rates and they would have to pay these higher prices on their loans so many of these companies would default by logic, you know, because then they yeah. can no longer operate because they need that credit and that cheap credit uh, to uh, reach like a, a certain margin. And I think that's the main fear now uh, in, in uh, Europe that uh, once the rate goes up, we will see a huge recession uh, due to like firm defaults. And don't forget about the sovereign debt as well. Eh? I mean, we had the euro crisis in uh, 2012. Yeah. And it has not been solved. No. So that, that situation is no, about that's to return true. as well. I mean, yeah, and, and uh, last year uh, or in this crisis, we've played around with you know the, the, the rules that we have imposed on nation states with their budgets. So uh, it's going to be very hard to undo that, and in that way, you know, try to tame uh, the, the very uh, expensive budgets of uh, Southern Europe, for instance. It's going to be very hard to sell that to Southern Europe after this because we've shown that. It's not necessary, at least it doesn't seem necessary, to obey the laws of finance, as it were. No, no, it's not necessary anymore. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, a lot, uh, a lot of interesting stuff going on on the, on the monetary side. Um, well, we are happy, but we're also uh, dystopian. Right. And, uh, the, the main real-life dystopia at this uh, moment, uh, in my point of view, is uh, red, red China. Um, you wanted to say something about their uh, situation. Yeah, I think uh, it's very uh, a very interesting time for East Asia right now uh, because things like Evergrande, but also just the, the economic malaise, you know, with shipping and, and, and immense economic uh, prices for gas and uh, other resources on which China thrives because itself it doesn't really have that much resources. I think it's a very interesting time to look at its uh, political behavior towards Taiwan because we've seen so many threatening news reports and so many uh, press statements by China, you know, that keeps emphasizing uh, the one China policy where Taiwan doesn't exist. While Taiwan has also fiercely responded, you know, showing that they're also kind of getting afraid of the, the tone that's being set by China. Uh, of course, a very large part of the uh, inflation and and supply chain shortages we have seen 
uh, is because of microconductors or semiconductors and microprocessors, of oh, which yeah. Taiwan is the world's greatest, as it is, yeah, yeah. Uh, a great supplier of that worldwide. Uh, it's interesting to see uh, now that there's so many issues on that topic, uh, that China is increasing its threatening behavior towards Taiwan. Also, because of domestic problems like the Evergrande, uh, it seems like it's time for China to focus on an external enemy with which they can distract uh, their populace uh, um, from the internal problems. Really behind the flag. Right, really behind the flag. And it's time for crisis, you know. Uh, they, they are experiencing shortages of all kinds. They are in deep, deep trouble regarding their debt uh, for these uh, real estate firms. And I think that Taiwan is right now looking so juicy for China. Uh, that I'm kind of afraid that something may happen in the coming time. Well, I, I think they may have squandered a really great opportunity during the whole capital riots uh, thing going on in the US. I mean, it has now become clear that the highest ranking uh, general, uh, Mark Milley, actually had a, had a hotline to, to his Chinese counterpart, uh, promising them, no, we're not going to yeah. attack you no matter what uh, our crazy president uh, says. I think the U.S. Uh, yeah was was uh, must have appeared so weak at that time yeah. that so that would have been a great opportunity to to strike, but the China didn't do it. No, and I think China is rightfully also really afraid of what would happen if they did, uh, which is the sparkle of hope for me uh, that it might you know just uh, fizzle down to to nothing, uh, because of course if they try to invade, everyone will know what the consequences are. Not only will Taiwan fall to China, but also the area will become a no-go zone for so much traffic. Uh, Japan, India, Australia, who are so dependent on you know traffic across that road. Yeah, that will be disrupted they, for sure. Yeah, yeah, they can't just uh, stand by. Regarding capital riots and the uh, general, yeah, it's uh, just a sign of how much in disarray the entire apparatus has been in the U.S. since the Trump presidency. And China, of course, doesn't show those signs. They are more of a unitary actor than the U.S. will ever well, be now. They're trying to appear as such. They, yes, yes, <laughs> of course. But it's it's still that still has an effect on you know how other entities view you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. but in in reality, also in China, there are deep divisions. Huh? I mean, their whole country, they have uh, the core uh, close to to the sea. But then they have uh, Inner Mongolia, Tibet and Xinjiang, yeah. which are all very different culturally and also economically from from the Chinese uh, uh, center. So, uh, yeah, I don't think they are any less divided no, than the US that's or true, Europe. But it's just a flow of information within and without uh, the country is just so different because for the US, the, the Republican Democrat opposition is almost a way of life. Yes. But in China, uh, in the East Coast, they're not going to talk about the uh, uh, rebelling region of Xinjiang or Tibet or something. Uh, maybe sometimes about Taiwan, because that's like a national objective yes, now. Yes. But the other ones, they don't consider it. They consider it China, and they're told that they're Chinese, yes. and that there's no problem, only just some and bad the, actors. The, the Chinese totalitarian system is uh, like the, the best one in, in human in the history. World. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible uh, how they are using all the latest technologies to be even more repressive and uh, so yeah, and uh, gunning, gunning both in the national level but also the international level. Yeah, it's uh, it's almost admirable. 
Yeah, no, well, it is definitely admirable from a state point of view. But we, of course, yeah, we yeah. can say a few things about the CCP, but they're not crazy, they're not stupid, no. and they are not incompetent. I mean, no, that's, they're that's not. For sure. <laughs> they're not. I mean, they might make errors like we do. Like everyone does. Uh, but, but they are of a certain disposition, I think, that we don't like in our administrators, which is, you know, always calculating, always gunning for, you know, personal power. Uh, and always uh, with uh, this, this real politic kind of attitude towards everyone, which you know you and I may appreciate a lot, but in our current political systems, it's no longer appreciated. Yeah, but what I'm even more scared of is not China itself, because uh, they, they they are very active, of course, in their own corner of, of the world. What I'm actually more scared of is how positive the Western leaders are viewing the Chinese system yeah. and are going to try to take a page out of their playbook. We've yeah. already seen that uh, with, uh, with the QR uh, codes for uh, your vac vaccination status. But then also uh, with uh, there's a lot of other things which uh, Western leaders could take as an example. The facial recognition cameras, uh, the social credit system. Yeah, uh, we just want to learn from it. Exactly. Which is really disgusting. And... Uh, I think you're very right in saying that it's very weird that despite all these things happening in China and, and being shown on the news, that there's never a public pushback against it and never some attempt to criticize or, or condone these people uh, who are behind it. Is it only because of the economic gains uh, for the nation states or is something else going on and, and, and are these Chinese uh, powers uh, affecting our domestic discourse, you know, on the topic. That's what I'm a bit afraid of, is why are they not criticizing China? Well, I mean, China has a lot of economic uh, firepower, which they manage to uh, use to influence, uh, to, to dispense influence at a lot of different levels. Also at the individual level, when a celebrity uh, speaks out against, uh, against China, he's immediately uh, faced with uh, financial effects of that yeah yeah but that's the the, the the evil attitude as it were of course the US also does that with their money but it seems to have uh, it seems to have gone to all levels like you say individual and, and state level and firm level which makes it so pervasive that you don't really see it I mean if if, if for instance uh, the, the Guardian would become very critical of China then China could respond by not allowing the Guardian to be active in, in their area at all. And yeah, that but would have a large financial impact. I, ho I had hoped that, you know, there would be plenty of people and, and, and firms and also nation states uh, that would uh, do so despite that. Because the public would ask for it, right? Mm -hmm. Because there would be a need for, for people in the Netherlands to hear from their leader, like, we condone this as genocide, yeah. for instance. But apparently there is no such need. And then the question well, is, why is there no need? Is it because the you know the coverage of all these things has been lacking and has been influenced by the CCP? Yeah, uh, partly, so, yes, I think, yeah. So yeah, then then you uh, there's, that's quite a dystopian situation, right? Oh, yeah, the only one standing against uh, red China is, uh, is the US, I think, at this time. Yeah, uh, for the major powers, Definitely. I mean, uh, Japan will always be there and India will always be there. Um, but uh, on the global stage, 
the only one really acting against China or seems to, to act against China is the US. So we uh, will, of course, continue to make fun of Joe Biden, but uh, let's not discount him completely because... <laughs> let's hope he knows what he's doing Yes, <laughs> in China. But uh, it seems that he has copied or at least uh, not diverted from Trump's uh, approach. He has taken a lot of, uh, of uh, yeah, uh, Trump's policy uh, and has kept it, uh, yeah, at, uh, in a similar way, uh, definitely in the protectionism uh, sphere. Uh, Biden is uh, as hard on uh, China as Trump. Yeah, as and I, I, th- I think that's because it was a popular move within the US. So it's really how much does the public want uh, to see China punished for what they're doing, rather than how much do our leaders want to uh, really uh, act on it, I think. Absolutely. The public is, uh, is important, huh? And that's why these democratic institutions are, are very important. So, uh, yeah, I think that's also an issue politically here in, in Europe. We are deciding more and more on the European level, but the European level is still very, very undemocratic. I mean, you have a European Parliament, but it's it's does not have a lot of uh, powers to uh, come up with new laws or to fire the European Commission. And then in the European Council, the voting is still uh, anonymous. So yeah, we don't really know what our leaders are doing, and it has not been politicized at all. No. Um, I think some small changes there could really uh, help to also make uh, make the European politics more and more accountable. And there's also a large role there for uh, for the press and the civil society, I think, to uh, to be critical there uh, there as well. Yeah, I think despite just being more uh, accountable, it would also be more uh, popular with the average voter. Because uh, notoriously, the EU elections always have a low turnout yes. compared to other national uh, elections. And it's also because people have no idea what's going to happen when they vote for a certain party. Uh, like they don't know about factions within the parliament of different parties from all different They're nations. They're playing their states, own right? game on their uh, square kilometer and the rest of Europe is not following it. Yeah, well, I mean, most people don't care for politics and they will totally not care for politics so far away from home and and so little covered on the news. The the journalists also do not really understand what the commissions within the parliament are and when they're going to release certain papers or whatever. They only have the attention to do that on a national level, it seems. So uh, I think that making uh, the, the EC and the European Council more transparent would allow the media to cover it better, you know, and to put on more juicy diversions uh, between uh, or diverse divisions between certain member states uh, than there is now because now it's just well we vote once every four years and the rest just happens in Brussels yeah sometimes we hear some weird new policy where Poland is being ostracized or Hungary is being ostracized because they're not doing what we want but nobody knows that uh, what we want, how is it defined, where in the process? In the, in the political science terms, uh, this uh, used to be called the permissive consensus. Right. So European voters would be just like, okay, yeah, just uh, go ahead, uh, do whatever you want. Yeah, because we <laughs> voted for this apparently. Yeah. Right? yeah. But that uh, permissive consensus, consensus is of course under, uh, under threat. So I think it would be better to replace it with like a, like a competitive, a democratic consensus rather than a permissive consensus. But yeah, uh, it's going to be a hard transition. Uh, I think that would also be necessary if we would really want to be a federation like the US, you know. We have to know what interests are being played out against each other. 
Well, uh, unless we could be a, a federation like the People's Republic of China. I mean, that, that's yeah, also no, that's the two paths uh, in an extreme sense. And uh, one uh, is more like the other at the moment. Uh, right now, we don't have the public competition as uh, except for like a few outliers, which are then public enemy number one, like yes. Poland or oh, Hungary. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's no talk about the camps within the council. And there are, of course. That's a, a fact. Yeah. But it's not public because they don't want to sell those seeds of, of conflict, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then if we would know about those uh, lines, then we would know how to vote to uh, influence uh, the, the outcome. Yeah. And that's sort of part of the democratic uh, game. Yeah. yeah, it's been cut off at uh, beyond voting. There's just no more input that you receive as a citizen, which you should, in order to base your vote. Yep. Uh, on, on, on good information and on relevant information. Most of that relevant information is just out of reach. Like uh, the, the European Commission has so many research papers and stuff and policy papers, but they are hidden, right? Like most people will never ever go to a platform yeah. and, and look at it. They are there, but you, you yeah, need you can, to... Yeah, you can look at them, but... Yeah, you, you need someone to uh, summarize them and to... Yeah, um, and you need someone to help navigate uh, the, 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 the archives, right, and the databases and such, and people aren't going to do that out of themselves. The majority aren't, so it has to be brought to them. Yeah. But now it's just obfuscated. Yeah, so, uh, but there are a lot of opportunities there to uh, try to uh, reach uh, the gap a bit. Yeah. So, of course, uh, I have uh, the website uh, fireofeurope.com, where I also do close reads on some of those uh, research uh, papers. And it's incredibly interesting what you find. If you just yeah. take the time to read through them, or I uh, looked at a speech by uh, uh, by Lagarde uh, at the IMF, and it, it's just so telling what they are uh, yeah. talking about in that in that speech. That's yeah. it's really interesting. So uh, yeah, if you haven't yet, uh, please uh, check it out. Um, anything? Else, other topics you wanted to uh, talk about? Uh, maybe just a little bit about the labor market. Oh, yeah. Because um, as inflation is now becoming widespread and uh, people are looking at uh, the yeah, growing economy we have, so uh, the GDP is slowly going up again. And on, people, on paper. Like on uh, paper, yeah. yes. And uh, people uh, have the opportunity to spend their money everywhere. Uh, and now we are hearing of labor shortages everywhere. Literally everywhere for the dedicated truck drivers. And, uh, the well, truck drivers, uh, you know, restaurants, healthcare. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Also, financial firms have trouble, you know, finding quality employees. So for everyone, the labor market's becoming more tight. Um, I think that's going to be in the public eye uh, the the bad guy of inflation. So uh, the inflation that's going to happen is going to be sold as something like. Well, yeah, uh, there were not enough laborers, so we had to increase wages, so we couldn't produce as much. So but then the way the the thing that uh, the fact that we are growing on paper, that's also driven by the same inflation, right? Yeah, well, it's 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 spent or it's uh, calculated by the, the 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 spending of everyone, and they're spending more for less. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the GDP is increasing, but what's actually happening for welfare uh, measurements is not. It's not increasing, it's decreasing even, because everything is becoming more expensive. And uh, as uh, people seem to realize now that the labor market shortage is going to be uh, less than short, 
because I feel like a lot of people have just opted out. Uh, mm -hmm. They have been uh, either fired or they have been given less hours or less pay over the two years. And they've considered how much is it worth to me to work? Yeah. Can I do without? And if yes, should I? Yeah. And I think a lot of people have answered yes to that question, which now that everything is supposed to be possible again, is going to lead to huge problems. Because those truck drivers, for instance, was only about a few hundred that were short. But oh, yeah. you can see the national crisis that it caused. Yeah. Because it's such a delicate system where everything has to be there on time. Just and, in time, yeah. And there shouldn't be like 15 teddy bears if we only expect 10 teddy bears to be sold or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. Right? Uh, but now it seems that there's too little people to even have 10 teddy bears. So there's only five. And then everyone is going to want uh, to pay more for one of those. Well, in, the, in a free market, you would then expect wages to go up to attract people, uh, to tempt people yeah. to come back into work. Yeah, and they may do so, uh, but that will drive inflation further. And I think like a lot of people have still will still opt out and they will still not change their life again. Uh, to start working they may have thought like well it's also flimsy you know and it can change uh, so fast that I would rather not and I don't think that's a bad decision at all well it depends on your personal situation of course yeah but, no uh, but where work isn't everything that's that's absolutely right yeah and I think some work isn't everything uh, yeah that's also and people yeah. who are at an older age you know and they're kind of just working because they always have uh, for some hours why shouldn't they be able to say no uh, while uh, in our public discourse it's going to be uh, attributed to uh, inflation or I mean uh, the inflation is going to be attributed to those people oh, yeah, 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 yeah. and the same with uh, in the US where unvaccinated people of course are now uh, being driven away by some companies yes uh, they will also uh, in their and reports in Italy state. and in, uh, yeah, in, Italy and in yeah. France uh, they will also in all their figures they will say well yeah we lost the unvaccinated workers so we had to increase the prices but they can never get those people back yeah so it's, it's the fault of the unvaccinated people that they are not allowed to back into yeah that work. they are not working I'm serious that will be the argument uh, in those areas in a few uh, months I think you are uh, once again ahead of the curve but uh, it, yeah it is on the one hand uh, it's understandable what you're saying on the other hand it's really absurd yeah. Because the government is prohibiting people from carrying out their job because they don't want to be vaccinated. And then it's their fault. Uh, that's yeah, really yeah, weird. but, but uh, we're living in crazy times, of course. Absolutely. Where people don't want to think too much about that connection. Like, uh, they don't have to point the fingers, but anyone can go on the news and say, well, there's a labor shortage. Maybe banning the laborers has something to do with it. Uh, if only they weren't banned, right? Yeah. If yeah, only yeah. they took up their responsibility. Exactly. So, uh, exactly. I think it's a catchy explanation, and it's going to uh, be believed by many people. Well, we're yeah, we're going to have to do something because if if we are going to be forced as an economy to raise wages, then of course the inflation is going to get kickstarted even more. Uh, the Guindos, uh, the vice president of the ECB, also warned uh, of this. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of a mixed feeling because I discussed this with multiple uh, people, uh, also employees. Uh, um, I mean, uh, they are employees in general; they're not uh, my employees or anything. But but uh, they said like uh, yeah, but they said like uh, yeah, but raising the wages that might be like the only good part of this uh, inflation, and then that is not going to happen. That's also uh, unfair, you know. So uh, yeah, and that's why we have to increase the interest rates. So that they can uh, still 
have their savings and have another part of their income which also counters inflation and the wage increase without increasing the interest rates is just going to lead to like gross spending yes uh, and it has to be spent you increase in wages but you have to spend it all you yeah. can't save oh you can't save yeah so uh, yeah. the the assets are just going to skyrocket go dry and yeah uh, but yeah. i mean like personal savings they're good that's going to disappear yeah because it's as like a two front attack yeah. right now, <laughs> and that's really unique. Because there's never been six percent inflation and negative interest rates. Yeah, like, that's so weird. That's funny. Yeah, it's like uh, okay, but uh, let's let's pump it up even. Yeah, more. let's pump it up because you know <laughs> we don't want to uh, default or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that's uh, that's great. Interesting times. Very interesting. So I'm going to upload uh, this podcast again to the to the YouTube, and I'm also uh, working on being able to upload it as well to uh, Spotify and uh, Apple. Uh, then I have to uh, put it on my website and create like an RSS uh, plugin. Right. So I'm just toying around a lot with it. So uh, some time ago I added the comment functionality, and then I also uh, updated the way that the URLs are uh, are made, so I'm uh, I'm slowly piece by uh, piece. Piece by piece, I'm assembling uh, the enormous weapon which will uh, bring down uh, the status quo. So right. uh, yeah. So please, please you have my it. sword. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, uh, Aragorn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So let's uh, let's leave it at that. Um, so uh, yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Ferdi. Yeah, thank you as well, and uh, to everyone listening, uh, see you next time. Yes, stay sane. Stay sane. Stay sane. Stay sane. 一生道是一种割舍一生道是一次重损海上空中陆上各作战机群以兄弟完善作战计划一生道是一场冲锋生命扛起使命我们用忠诚筑起长城改革强军征途如虹历史告诉我改革创新与时俱进是人民军队不断发展的康庄大道人民军队的力量来自改革